0: This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, Professor Mary Louise McLaws, an epidemiologist from the University of New South Wales, joined me to discuss the rising cases of COVID 19 in Victoria, Australia, as well as the subsequent lockdown of metropolitan Melbourne and Mitchell Shire. We talk about the essential differences between a suppression strategy and an elimination strategy and which strategy many epidemiologists in Australia believe we should be pursuing. We also look at the growing evidence around the effectiveness of mask wearing to reduce transmission of the virus. Mary Louise is a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. Then, Finally, historian and author Patrick Mullins joined me to talk about his new book, The Trials of Portnoy, How Penguin Brought Down Australia's Censorship System. Joining me uh, via Skype, Ben Eltham, the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and we're going to be talking about the latest in federal politics, and uh, there is quite a lot to cover Um, And particularly, there's been a lot of pressure on the federal government in terms of its uh, ongoing and future supports for um, all Australians with dealing with the coronavirus and the economic effects of that, as well as so many other types of effects. Um, And we did see in the last uh, 24 hours or so also um, a new payment that has been announced for some um, people receiving payments from the government already. It's a, a supplementary payment, a second payment, um, that this other group of people who are not on Job Seeker um, will be receiving, and uh, it's a $750 amount. But, of course, it's not um, really the, going to solve all of our woes and our problems, and it's really quite piecemeal. So I welcome Ben now to chat about all of this and more. Hi there, Ben.
1: Morning, Amy. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: I'm okay. Thank you.
0: That's good. Um, now, it's really uh, interesting to see that this is just going on and on, um, the back and forth between Labor, the union movement, the welfare sector, uh, and of course, the federal government in terms of what the plan is Um for job keeper and job seeker, particularly now, given the changing circumstances of uh, the lockdown, second lockdown in Victoria, which is going to run for six weeks, which is obviously um, quite substantial, and uh, although it does affect metropolitan Melbourne and Mitchell Shire. Um, And that will, of course, have economic effects. It certainly will have other economic effects uh, outside of that metropolitan region, given um, the reliance on tourism and also on travel for work, uh, with a lot of people being told they need to stay at home. What are your thoughts on the developments that we've just seen around the federal government coming out with this announcement of a $750 payment?
1: Um, so, the government's next tranche of the uh, stimulus is uh, something that's been in the original package for a while. This was just the next tranche in that. So, they'd always plan to pay this $750 um, back when they announced, I think it was actually the first stimulus package all the way back in March. So, this is um, this is a payment that largely goes to welfare recipients, uh, people on uh, JobSeeker um, and also some uh, aged pensioners um, and Job people on... Don't, don't get it. JobSeeker don't get it, right. No, Sorry, I'm wrong. the rhyming. age
0: pension, disability support pension, care payments... Um, and some of the far less uh, well-known ones, like a bereavement allowance, yes, right, right, with family tax benefits, and that kind of
1: thing. Right. Well, th- <laughs> thank you for the real-time fact check, there, Amy. Um, okay. So, um, yeah. So this is that's right baked in from the original stimulus, um, but. It doesn't obviously answer the bigger question of what the government's going to do with JobKeeper, which is the big wage subsidy, the $1,500 a fortnight. The government says they're going to reveal all on July the 23rd, um, and we'll have to wait until then to find out what they're going to do. But there's an awful lot of pressure on the government now to extend JobKeeper because, of course, the economy is in deep trouble. This is a recession now that looks like it's not going away anytime soon. Um, you know, the the fantasy of a snapback have been torpedoed torpedoed by the second wave outbreak in Victoria. Um, and now the government's faced with a very tricky set of economic circumstances where some parts of the country are reopening and other parts of the country are going back into a pretty severe lockdown. Um, Melbourne is about 25% of Australia's economy, um, Greater Melbourne. So that's a big hit if you take Melbourne back into lockdown. Um, and then, of course, there are all the flow-on effects Um, So, we are sort of waiting until the 23rd of July to see what the government's going to do.
0: Yeah, Victoria is a very substantial part of Australia's economy and it is the fastest growing city as well. It's overtaken Sydney recently. Um, it does seem like that will have an effect. And it was interesting to see also the AFL send its players, all of its players, from Victoria out of the state over to other hubs. So it's interesting, as you say, that other states are you know, having some level of normality and um, seeing a return to a certain amount of crowds with social distancing in place. Um, and even potentially crowds at the Western Australian stadiums. Um, but the the difference there, I guess, as we've been told many times, is that um, they, to varying degrees, had, apart from New South Wales, um, very low amounts of community transmission. And so they were starting from a different point than us. Um, but one of the elements that is interesting for us at a federal level as well is the... Um, the kind of increasing borders and checkpoints at the borders uh, for Queensland and New South Wales and South Australia um, and obviously uh, all the rest, Tasmania. Victorians are not welcome um, in any <laughs> yeah. of these states.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's <all> right.
0: <laughs> yes, and the uh, the police and ADF are, you know, patrolling borders. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that kind of hard borders that we now have and uh, the really severe policing of that?
1: Well, yes, Australia's federal system is beginning to fray, I, I suppose. Look, on the one hand, it's merely sensible public health procedures. Um, you know, it makes sense, for example, for South Australia and Western Australia and Queensland, which are largely virus-free to try and limit travel from the southern states. Uh, but it also, I think, shows how difficult it is uh, for a federal response to be mounted in the current scenario. So obviously, the, the outbreak in Victoria is the most concerning bar, part of the, of the problem. But, you know, the state premiers have also had to make their own decisions. And I think it shows, too, um, the degree to which um, this has been a response very much by the states and the territories rather than by by the feds. You know, Morrison has coordinated the federal response through the national cabinet. But um, it's really been um, an individual state and territory response. And that's probably why Daniel Andrews is under so much scrutiny at the moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we did see as well um, the the changes now to childcare uh, come into effect. And, of course, um, although there is a, a level of support still from the federal government, it is nowhere near what it was when this uh, coronavirus pandemic hit in the first wave. We saw childcare become free. Um, which was obviously important in the federal government's mind to enable people to be working um, and able to get out and do what they need to do. Um, and especially essential workers, as they said. But now we're seeing um, that that has officially uh, wrapped up and that we're into another phase, a new phase of childcare um, with differing levels of subsidy. What are your thoughts on that situation and how that's going to affect parents and uh, women, particularly uh, participating in the workforce? And as we know, uh, women do make up a very disproportionately high level of care workers and healthcare workers in Australia.
1: Um, yeah, well, absolutely. Um, I think that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, the, the childcare industry has faced, uh, you know, multiple disruptions, rolling disruptions because of the pandemic. Um, and once again, I think it shows like COVID is, is a bit of an X-ray really for the deficiencies of our society. It tends to illuminate some of the structural problems that we had before the pandemic. Now we can sort of see them much more clearly because of the virus. And childcare is a good example. Australia had a very high cost, highly privatised childcare system, you know, it hasn't particularly served parents well. um, And um, as a result, you know, um, it's grinding to a halt because it really relies on uh, large numbers of of children being in the system for those childcare centres to be viable. If you take all of those children out of the system, then it rapidly becomes non viable. And that's the, the problem that the childcare sector faces and the one that the government's grappling with. You know, and I think it also sort of shows some of the lies that we've told ourselves over the years about what's an essential service. You know, we all we are happy to agree that um, electricity is essential or, you know, certain types of emergency services are essential, but um, it's only now that we face this pandemic that we realise that caring for our children is also kind of very important as well. Um, And the government hasn't had much of a policy response. Um, So, yeah, what what is the government going to do to try and prop up childcare is another of the unanswered questions, really, um, that we'll hope to find out in the economic statement on 23rd of July.
0: Yeah, it was uh, interesting that people had picked up that uh, the members of the very important expenditure review committee are made entirely of men um, and that that may be uh, one reason why there's been a a huge focus on how this uh, pandemic impacts upon men, but maybe um, a lack of understanding and therefore a, a lack of policy now around how we address things and issues for women.
1: Yep, absolutely. I think we've talked about this before on our show, Amy. Um, This is a highly patriarchal government. Um, It's a government that has paid only lip service to women's issues. Um, And yet, you know, this is exactly a a crisis that has hit women and young people the hardest. So uh, something like 55% of the employment that's been lost in the pandemic has been jobs for women, Um, And, of course, um, the industries that have been hit hardest are industries with high levels of female employment. Um, And that's before you get into those arguments about gender equity. So it's been a disaster, really, for women, this this crisis. And the government shows no signs, really, of understanding that crisis, let alone building a policy to try and address it.
0: No. And uh, one issue that is historical... Um, but now going to be very relevant at 11am this morning is the fact that the palace letters, um, which have been certainly the subject of a lot of discussion, uh, those letters between Australia's Governor-General and the Queen uh, that were written around the time that Gough Whitlam, Australia's uh, Prime Minister, uh, that was um, Those were obviously written and are very contentious and uh, given the, the dismissal as being a very controversial moment in Australia's federal political history, um, there's a lot of uh, anxious historians and political pundits waiting to see what they are going to reveal and if they will actually uh, reveal anything at all in terms of um, the reasons why and how this all actually happened. Of course, it's been the matter of a lot of speculation and uh, emotive commentary. What are your thoughts on this development?
1: Well, um, you know, I, I don't have too many thoughts on the the palace letters. Uh, it would certainly be very interesting to see what's in them, Um, Of course, they solve a historical mystery that's been troubling historians for a couple of generations, which was what was the correspondence between the Governor-General and the Queen in the run-up to the dismissal of Gough Whitlam in 1975. Um, This is one of those, you know, issues that I think is of more historical interest and importance rather than of contemporary (laughs) public policy importance. Um, But it'll certainly be very interesting, uh, and, you know, I think – Perhaps uh, the more interesting aspect for me is the fact that the National Archives kind of fought and delayed this decision to release, uh, to release the papers for a very long time, you know, which is of a piece with the increasing secrecy of the the Morrison government in general.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, just finally we thinking about Hong Kong, and it's become obviously very important um, and bubbling along in terms of the uh, protests that have been happening for quite a while now. And um, we did see China introduce national security laws that have made a lot of people in Hong Kong Um, Not just uh, those Hong Kongers themselves, but Australians who are currently residing over in Hong Kong, uh, particularly nervous about how these laws will be applied to them and their freedoms. And um, there was reported uh, the first or one of the first uses of the law was to stop and check the backpack of a passerby who happened to have a um, free Hong Kong or independence for Hong Kong flag in his backpack and uh, got charged for that. So, um, what are your thoughts in terms of the Morrison government and also the UK government, I guess? The Morrison government kind of has been um, talking to the UK government about what type of strategy they could put in place to support those people from Hong Kong who are currently residing um, in Australia in particular, and um, and it's, there was some commentary around whether it actually went far enough um, and whether the focus on um, just admitting people with particular skills that are relevant to Australia uh, is appropriate, given that um, some people believe perhaps humanitarian reasons are another grounds that could be laid out for people to apply for uh, residency and potentially citizenship.
1: Yes, yeah, so the situation in Hong Kong continues to deteriorate after the implementation of the mainland government security law in the, the island province. Um, so um, there's obviously a lot of concern about what will happen to Hong Kong as the you know government of Xi Jinping seeks to crack down on protesters, particularly democracy protesters there. Um, the governments of Australia and the UK have both offered visas to Hong Kong residents. Um, we're a little bit unclear about uh, how generous the Australian government will be with those Hong Kong visas, whether it'll be a sort of anyone can get one kind of arrangement or whether there'll be the usual quite strict scoring kind of mechanism via which those uh, visas will be offered. I'm not across the full details of the the actual visa conditions there, Um, but I think the interesting implications there is it continues the deterioration of the relationship with mainland China that's been going on under the Morrison government. So um, you've had the Australian government issue a travel warning about Australians travelling to China Chinese Government has now issued a tit-for-tat warning for Chinese citizens travelling to Australia. None of this is good, right? like this is this is a deterioration in the diplomatic relationship with our major trading partner. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're entering into something of a crisis in our relationship with China. It's a uh, very dangerous territory for the Morrison government to be wading into. Um, obviously, it comes in, in a sort of broader context of increased tensions in the South China Sea and the military build-up that China is undertaking. Um, We talked last week about the Australian government's defence response. We're going to embark on a big arms race of our own. Um, These are worrying developments, I think. And, you know, I think all Australians should be pretty concerned.
0: Yes, it is certainly um, there's been a focus away from economic prosperity and the benefits that Australia can reap uh, from that angle. And now, obviously, the security angle um, and uh, and privacy and 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 uh, now a very strong focus on the differences of values, quote-unquote, between uh, mainland China and Australia.
1: Yeah, well, there are differences in values between the two countries. Um, so, you know, there's no, there's no doubt our country is uh, reasonably democratic and reasonably open and the, the Chinese system is less so different What's going on in Xinjiang, for example, is horrifying. Um, with perhaps a million Uyghurs in uh, in concentration camps, so I think there's there's lots of concerning developments. You know, 2020s are a worrying year in so many ways. But the deterioration of our relationship with China has got to be one of the most the biggest worries long term for Australia
0: indeed we'll have to obviously keep an eye on that as we discussed last week in terms of the defence policy developments and uh, the update to the defence white paper thanks so much ben for joining us today and
1: uh, hope you to Amy. have a good week appreciate it you too mate
0: you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Um, I'm really pleased to welcome Mary Louise uh, McLaws now to talk all about uh, Victoria's situation and, of course, uh, beyond. Thanks so much, Mary Louise, for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, It's so great to uh, have you on the show. And I think um, we've heard a lot in recent or even recent months, I guess, uh, about armchair epidemiologists. But I wonder whether you could share with us what the job of an epidemiologist really entails and the types of um, things that governments and uh, other world bodies uh, call on epidemiologists for. Well,
2: epidemiology is... um Basically, looking at patterns of disease, and there are many different types of epidemiologists. There are those uh, that look at uh, non-communicable diseases like, you know, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Then there are others that look at influenza, so uh, infectious diseases, uh, or outbreaks. So I'm one that looks at uh, hospital infection outbreaks and infection control and keeping patients. Safe in hospitals, uh, and that's where I've, um, I guess, honed my expertise in infection prevention and control. And also, I've had um, a, a, some experience with SARS in, uh, that at the outbreak in two thousand and three, uh, evaluating the response uh, in hospitals and also the response in Beijing, because um, you know you can learn a lot uh, from. Uh, how you've done and where you should have gone right. And I think the um, uh, look back and the the learned process uh, of Beijing was that uh, ring fencing of that uh, large, lovely city uh, would have or could have uh, changed the course of history. And so uh, China learnt from that uh, report that we did and they did a, a rapid lockdown of Wuhan, and then, of course, Hubei uh, and other places around China. So, yeah, so there are epidemiologists like myself that look at outbreaks or in the community or in hospitals um, and we're looking for patterns. And we also, uh, if we're if we're been around for a while, we also look at behavior because the uh, intersection between human behavior and the virus, whichever that virus is, Uh, Dynamics is really important because the virus, uh, normally from uh, animals, uh, won't get into humans and then spread unless uh, it utilizes our behavior, which this one and SARS and Ebola and MERS has done very successfully. So you don't just look at the pattern of the disease, but you have to think about how did this virus um, utilize. Uh, our subconscious or or, um, breach of protocol so that we can prevent it happening in the future. So it's it's all about responding rapidly and learning rapidly so we don't keep making the same mistakes again.
0: Yes, absolutely. And uh, it was interesting to see in the early days of uh, COVID-19, the Uh, really given that we didn't understand this virus and it was obviously a novel coronavirus that we hadn't yet dealt with that there was a lot of um, guessing around what is the adequate level of PPE personal protective equipment and does the uh, virus spread through droplets is it airborne and we've just recently seen in uh, the last few days that the World Health Organization said that it couldn't rule out that COVID 19 could be spread through the air in an airborne sense. So, we are still, it seems like, learning uh, more and more about how coronavirus is spread, but also how it is um, experienced in different parts of the population. And I wonder, in your um, field and given your experience with SARS uh, the first time around, were there some of those lessons around, uh, you know, hospital infection control and PPE and how one might uh, protect our? healthcare workers which of course um, they are certainly on the front line and uh, have been greatly at risk recently in Victoria. We've seen a lot more infections in that particular group of people.
2: Yeah so first all, I'll go back to airborne. So for your listeners there may be many of them that have got um, uh, a great understanding of part- particle sizing. So we Separate and categorise particle sizing for how we think we get disease into droplets. They're the large ones over five microns, or are very small into droplet nuclei, are uh, less than five microns. And we've only, we've woke, as the American expression, uh, to the idea that uh, infections, respiratory infections, expelled from the mouth through singing, coughing, even speaking, uh, can be expelled in different sized particles. Once upon a time, everyone thought that flu was only spread by very small particles, aerosolized droplet nuclei. Uh, My PhD student, um, uh, Dr. Jane Grolton, and uh, her other supervisor, Professor Bill Rawlinson, and myself, and Ewan Tovey, uh, from Sydney University uh, got together as a group and we uh, did some lab studies where Jan uh, had patients with influenza A, B and other respiratory infections read through what we call an Anderson sample so that their membranes of different sizing and we identified that in fact influenza is not just expelled as one size particle and neither was Uh, respiratory uh, syncytial virus, which was thought to only be droplet. So we found that, in fact, there were many different science particles that that you could categorise in those two areas. But what we don't know, what we didn't know then, and what we still don't know, and a group of scientists believe that, uh, and they differ from WHO, is we still don't know whether COVID-19 is spread by those tiny particles. We have at WHO always acknowledged that healthcare workers are at risk from those small aerosolized particles, and that's why we get them to wear a a certain type of uh, mask called a particulate or a respirator or an N95, Um, and while they're doing things like intubating a patient, putting a tube uh, down um, into their airways, because that can then uh, produce very, very tiny particles And uh, it's believed that a medical mask doesn't provide enough protection while you're doing that and your face is very close to the patient and they have to wear a face shield as an additional precaution. So WHO has never disagreed with that. Um, Neither have they ever disagreed with the idea that ventilation is very important. So we've put in uh, a lot about uh, air changes. So there has been testing of air samples and they have found, um, because aerosolized particles hang in the air for longer, they have found some COVID-19 in the air, suggesting that it was in these small particles. But what the scientists haven't been able to prove and what we didn't prove when we found um, the different sized particles with the, um, in 2013 when we did that lab study was, are they in infectious dosing? So these tiny particles, do they have enough of COVID-19 on them, and uh, to breathe in to then penetrate the alveolar cells or the alveoli deep into your lungs? So while it's theoretically possible, we've said that if you're going to, if you're a healthcare worker and you're going to do a procedure that could place you at risk, always wear a particulate mask. But if you're in the community like you're listening, it's unlikely that you need that type of protection. Um, but it doesn't mean that one day you might be in a restaurant or in a bar or a club and somebody's coughed at one end and it's spread to you. And that's why overcrowding and indoors is um, this virus's friend. It loves overcrowding and um, poor um, airflow uh, It doesn't like natural airflow um, because it pushes all the particles uh, down onto the ground faster uh, than a slower um, change in airflow. So we we accept that there are all of these possibilities, but we've looked at the patterns of the epidemiology, particularly in the community, and determined that it is safer if we get you to wear either a medical mask, even though they're sometimes at low supply, or a cloth mask, because there's really good uh, evidence now that the newly made three-layer cloth masks, they don't give you the same protection as a medical mask, but they do give you better protection than a bare face, and they can be quite comfortable to wear.
0: Yes, absolutely. And it is um, potentially easier to fit a cloth mask if you can customize it to your own face size, because that's another thing that I know um, some women in particular have found is the one size fits all um, surgical masks can often not fit securely enough around the face and the um, bridge of your nose.
2: Yes, we found that in um, the group uh, at WHO that I'm part of, uh, one of the representatives from Africa, has found that some of these uh, medical masks don't suit um, the the African healthcare workers. And in Asia, um, it doesn't fit their nose very well either. So they are making masks according to um, uh, potentially a... um, a longer uh, sided uh, nose, you know, with a very um, uh, elevated uh, bridge of the nose, so that you can then pinch that um, metal um, part of the medical mask to fit the nose. So, I think the producers need to realize that there are all different um, sizes and shapes of noses, and they need to be more accommodating. And out in the community, that's absolutely the case. WHO has. Uh, a website you can get onto to show you how to, how to make the mask and, um, and how to make sure that it comes up to the bridge of your nose to the side of your face, um, near your jawbone and then below your chin so you can, uh, uh, speak uh, without, um, your uh, breath uh, escaping the mask. Yes, absolutely.
0: And uh, it is important to note, because I think some people have felt uh, that it was more comfortable to have it sitting under the nose, but it is really important that it actually sits over the nose, um, up to the bridge of the nose, um, because obviously uh, that's another part of the reducing transmission, isn't it?
2: That's right. I mean, you see on television healthcare workers uh, swabbing the inside of the nose, uh, quite deep... um, Past um, the mares where I um, uh, and and past um, the turbinates, where that actually stop um, dust from going into your lungs, can be a little uncomfortable. But that's where this virus can sit. Uh, it does prefer in the lower airways, but that's where they can uh, test for it. So if it sits in your nose, at the back of your nose, you don't want the mask under the nose. Because if you're breathing heavily, uh, it can come out of your nose. And if you're standing close to somebody, they can breathe it in, particularly if you're standing uh, close to them for a long period of time. Um, And we estimate that that period of time is about 15 minutes. Look, that's fairly arbitrary, um, but basically it's a long period of time.
0: Yes. I'm interested in your understanding around um, the role of masks and the level of which it can reduce transmission. There was some really interesting commentary from the chief health officer in Victoria who was citing a a Lancet meta-analysis study that recently came out, and that was one of the reasons why he uh, changed his recommendation and suggested that Um, Those who can't adequately distance, socially distance, the 1.5 metres should um, or are advised to wear a mask. Um, It's not obviously mandatory in Victoria. Um, but we also did see even overseas, some countries like Germany and different cities in Germany, like the city of Jena, um, became an early adopter of masks, and we did see a study recently suggest that um, it reduced transmission to um, potentially even forty percent. So uh, it was interesting that there are various amounts of, I guess, figures around how much it could reduce transmission, but the Chief Health Officer did mention it might be able to reduce transmission if we had a significant uptake of people uh, wearing it of up to two-thirds. What are your thoughts around those types of figures?
2: Well, at WHO, we were presented with the preprints of that paper and we're presented with many preprints. And uh, the guidelines that were released on the 5th of June included that, so uh, this knowledge has been out there uh, since the beginning of June, and it's taken Australia, uh, sadly, until we've got this uh, multiple clusters in Victoria to start rethinking, and as a WHO, um advisor to WHO, and on that committee, I've been trying to get the community to hear that you're at more risk with a bare face if you're in a high-risk area. And those high-risk areas are quite frankly getting on an aeroplane. Um, I'm not sure why uh, we haven't made that mandatory because you're sitting in an aeroplane for over an hour and even though they say they have a HEPA filter, it doesn't prevent you from getting it. Uh, we have HEPA filters in uh, respiratory wards uh, and the negative air pressure room where the healthcare worker still has to wear a mask because that HEPA filter works to filter the air out so that when you open the ward door, that uh, contaminated air doesn't go into uh, the corridor and contaminate uh, people walking by. So that HEPA filter in the aeroplane won't help you. Uh, It might if you're at one end of the plane compared to the other. But you still need to wear a mask within that environment. It it may help... um, the pilot coming out of the cockpit but even then um, if somebody's been up near um, the pointy end of the plane uh, and coughing or breathing um, it won't help so we need to wear a mask on an airplane we need to wear a mask on public transport or in lifts or in public places where you want to uh, shop That can't keep your distance because we Australians are very sociable And we're not very good at keeping our distance. And so um, I'm pleased that uh, the chief health officers and the health officers in each state are now starting to hear uh, the message from WHO. um, And uh, of course, via the original uh, piece of of research, but there were many other pieces of research that we included in that guideline. And when we looked at face, masks that were alternative to medical masks uh, at the beginning of the outbreak we weren't very impressed with them because uh, it was old data on old uh, cloth masks and we wanted medical masks to not be at um, short supply for the frontline health workers but now people are making better masks and the evidence is um, much more um, uh, convincing where uh, some uh, masks can uh, protect you thirty percent but others can protect you up to um, from thirty to seventy percent now a good medical grade mask will protect you from ninety five percent or more so a seventy percent protection if you're wearing it and somebody else is wearing it uh, you are uh, effectively pro- uh, really well protected um, and Look, there has been the argument that one of the reasons that Australians weren't asked to wear a mask uh, was that they feared that people touching the outside of the mask would contaminate themselves. Well, they have done a study. It was only a small one. There are some problems with the methodology, the way they tried to yield the virus off the front of the mask of a healthcare worker on a ward that wasn't doing an aerosol-generating procedure, so it was a medical-grade Um, Mask, and they found no virus on the outside of the mask. Now, that's um, uh, a little convincing in that if they didn't find it doing regular care uh, so that there wasn't this buildup, then potentially um, the population uh, are at very little risk of contaminating themselves by touching the outside of their mask that's potentially contaminated. But I also also say to those people that use that as an argument for why we can't trust the public to use a mask is, well, I prefer them to use a mask than have a bare face Mm
1: -hmm. if they
2: can't keep the social distancing because if they've got a bare face, they are definitely going to be contaminated. And if their hands are contaminated, all we need to do is tell them, try not to touch your mask and um, if you do alcohol-based hand drop carried around in your pocket or your handbag uh, because you know Australians have a very high level of education and uh, we can um, uh, teach Australians how to do things very safely uh, we we teach them lots of public health um, interventions uh, that don't then place them at risk of another disease necessarily because that's for the that's what the other argument was. Well, if we focus on this, they're not going to take up hand hygiene. and They're not going to take up social distancing. Um, but that hasn't been proven that once we get you to wear a mask, you're not going to do the other things. Um, so I, I think that a mask in those crowded conditions, given that Melbourne and Sydney have a potential problem at the moment, it will send a a very strong public health message that there's a risk out there. Now, you don't need to use a mask in public in all the other states and territories because um, you've got very close to eradication in those other states and territories and the the benefit is very minimal uh, compared to the annoyance of wearing a mask.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly in the situation uh, Victoria finds itself in, People uh, will be going outdoors far less frequently at the moment. so um, they'll be need to be used less, but certainly can be used in that targeted way when they're outside doing those essential activities. Um, I did talk to one of my close friends from university who is South Korean and lives in Seoul, and I asked about masks, and I wonder um, and I did ask about you know the cultural etiquettes um, and whether mask wearing was common in South Korea. Um, And she said that it wasn't really as common to the extent that it was in Japan, in some of the other Asian countries, but once their government had told them this is essential, which is basically at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the population... Uh, really behaved and and followed that guidance very closely and strictly. And I was wondering about those when you were talking earlier about behaviour and um, that being a really important part of public health management and infection control, um, whether governments are assuming that Australia doesn't have the same types of um, cultures that lend itself to masks and whether that is potentially a misnomer. Uh, Yes,
2: so... um It's my observation that countries that have experienced SARS or MERS have uh, a much uh, faster uptake of public health messaging. And their uh, outbreak um, epidemiologists uh, have been primed in a previous outbreak uh, on how to go in um, early and hard. The public are more... um, accommodating of that approach, and so they've been able to uh, control this outbreak very well. So uh, South Korea um, has had a resurgence uh, when they lifted restrictions, and this is sadly commonplace. But um, certainly South Koreans who had had MERS and had been under restrictions because of MERS were much faster at accommodating um, their government's uh, request and the same thing in Taiwan, um, China, um, but you know Australia is a multicultural, multi faith community, and um, we are um, uh, we should be working on that uh, because uh, we have many uh, migrants, uh, residents, uh, citizens from Asian countries. That can lead the way and, and show us how to do this. Um, I know that uh, when I go to Melbourne, um, it's a very multicultural uh, city, and I think that um, we should be um, uh, uh, working on uh, the uptake and you know the, the, that cultural uptake of mask wearing in the city by um, uh, you know congratulating our Asian Australians. For uh, their adoption, their rapid adoption, because uh, we really believe that it has uh, assisted um, greatly uh, their uh, success in in Seoul and other countries in Tokyo, et cetera.
0: Yeah, it's so true. You do see that in uh, in the Melbourne in a CBD, really very frequently, and uh, I agree. It's something that. Um, a lot of my friends uh, who hail from Asia would do as something that's second nature. If they start to feel unwell, they don't want to spread it to anyone else, and so they use a, a reusable cloth mask. Um, and it does make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> it just uh, yeah, it's, it might take, hopefully not too long for Victorians and Australians to uh, make it become second nature as well. Um, I am talking to Professor Mary Louise McLaws, who is an epidemiologist at UNSW and also an advisor to the World Health Organization on infection control and for prevention um, and other matters relating to COVID-19. I did want to ask about, I guess, what is a burning question for many Victorians who find themselves in this situation um, and, you know, obviously to a very different situation to their state our counterparts in Australia we have you know had a i guess a public discussion around why victoria has seen such a huge increase in community transmission and um and when that started and what the kind of responses can be and should be and what we might learn from this uh, second wave, I guess, um, which some people are calling it. And we did see, you know, a very kind of gradual but then very steady increase in cases before the school holidays started here in Victoria. And uh, there were a lot of kind of nervous people, particularly from the regional areas, concerned about, um, you know, the virus moving throughout the state and having increased community transmission. And I wonder if you could shed some light on it for us from an epidemiological perspective. And you've seen, I guess, the um, increase in clusters and where they've come from and, you know, the types of transmission environments that seem to have um, increased our cases. What do you think some of those factors have been in this second uh, wave that has caused this really harsh um, lockdown of six weeks here in uh, particularly metropolitan Melbourne?
2: Uh, look, you've got a unique um, uh, issue going on in Melbourne. You've got a highly um, socialised, interconnected um, cultural group that have um, uh, live in uh, close, confined areas that have a larger extended families and have uh, extended uh, cultural... Um, Uh, connections uh, religiously or socially. And then you've got uh, the breach in protocol in the uh, quarantine hotel. So uh, that spilled over into the families and then the families spilled it over into um, other families and uh, their wider community. Uh, So it's um, a perfect but nasty storm. Uh, And I think the lesson that can be learned from that is um, don't assume that a community that has uh, English as an additional language uh, accesses um, mainstream radio, TV, or newspapers, um, or that um, their uh, original language is uh, proficient enough to read it, um, because we know that many people that come to this country have come from a war-torn area or Places where their education has been interrupted. Um, and then they go on to leading highly productive, wonderful lives here. Uh, and we need to uh, accommodate their, their ability to get this information. We can't expect them to come to the information. So the learning um, uh, lesson here is go out to our uh, communities um, that live in crowded conditions. It's often a proxy. Or, um, poor, poor um, uh, working conditions, uh, and therefore a potential for spread within that, and also maybe not getting access to mainstream um, messaging, and that we need to work through uh, their religious or cultural or uh, social leaders, or their you know leaders within um, the housing groups, uh, and uh, don't wait. Uh, an epidemiologist need to not just look at the numbers, but I've always gone for the walk, the walkthrough uh, to identify what the area looks like. Um, What what am I dealing with here? And it gives you a really uh, good sense of uh, how the virus can utilize environments as well. Uh, And uh, the other message is, Uh, we need to not wait for the next time and go to uh, working conditions such as the abattoirs we know are problematic, Uh, any factory lines where you can't change the built environment and identify whether or not they can wear face shields because they probably can't wear a mask for eight to ten hour shifts. Um, But you make sure that their their lunch area uh, has um, perspex divides so they can take their face shield or mask off Uh, and eat without um, infecting others. So there are many things that you can do to be proactive to prevent this from ever happening again.
0: Yeah, and uh, it is interesting that you know, we are dealing with that set of circumstances, as you said, around the physical living environments, um, as well as, you know, some very large uh, family groupings. And, you know, depending on living arrangements, it can be really difficult to social distance. And I know that um, there's been a lot of discussion around uh, public housing as just one example of where it is very difficult for residents to be able to adequately social distance from each other um, in, a, you know, very narrow corridors using lifts, um, shared spaces, and, of course, uh, being very social and having a great number of friends and, um, you know, allies and acquaintances in the same building um, means that there is more or increased socialisation. And I wondered, given that we are in this um, second round, are there ways that we might think about how we could prevent um, a third round, a future clusters and outbreaks in these um, environments where uh, housing arrangements are very crammed or are very small and um, and what might some things be from an epidemiological perspective um, that a state government might consider around trying to prevent this from happening again
2: uh, um, I think that um, uh, you know leadership is, you will always expect to make errors always in outbreaks, even if you've done um, MERS, and Ebola or SARS before. Um, But what uh, uh, good leadership and good epidemiology is, is learning before the fact. So acting rapidly, either learning from our neighbours in the north, uh, and I'm talking about Asia um, or New Zealand, and ensuring that you don't repeat the same mistake again, for example, the Diamond Princess, um, you don't want to repeat that again, but we did. Uh, you don't want to repeat um, the same mistake again that are uh, these uh, family clustering in other parts of Victoria or in, um, in New South Wales. So it's all about um, getting the public to accept um, proactive uh, response rather than reactive response, because you're never going to be are popular doing an outbreak investigation. You're either going to act too fast or that's how the public perceive it uh, and they can't see a benefit because you've prevented something or you've acted too slow and there's an enormous struggle and then there's lockdowns. So I prefer to be disliked and act fast and that's what um, all of this um, sadness that's, you know, challenges that's happening in Melbourne. Need to um, constantly remind the public, accept uh, early intervention uh, because that's what will save um, uh, the city basically. Now we do know that in um, New South Wales we have a problem with um, bars and clubs and that's because the virus loves uh, the socialising of human beings and so what can we learn from that? Well, we either have to learn to um, go back to a smaller number of um, patrons, uh, like you are now in Melbourne. Um, You're now uh, no longer allowed to go to places like that. Um, Or you become um, um, pre-active, responsive, and say, how can I ensure that if you go to these clubs, you stay at a, a distance? Well, you can't. And so if I've got to wear a face shield, which will be a bit difficult to drink your your, 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 um, glass of beer through it, so you're going to have to do lots of things like um, ensure you can't come in unless every single person uh, has a name and a bona fide phone number that they can contact trace. As it's all about rapid contact tracing to put the next uh, possible source of infection out of circulation. So it's about learning fast, but also um, being um, responsive to somebody else's a loss and um, an outbreak and go, well, we're not going to wait for that to happen. We're going to be doing something different.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a really important point because um, I know we've had discussions in the past or in the first wave when we were talking about the fact it should feel like an overreaction, Rather than an underreaction or a cautious approach, and uh, the second time around, just before the uh, school holidays, to me at least, it felt like an underreaction or a very, you know, we'll wait and see, um, softly, softly approach, rather than just a, let's get this under control straight away before it becomes something else. Mm. Um, but as you say, it's a something that obviously we will learn from. Um, one of the other parts of this picture that I'd love to get your views on, that actually we have heard uh, more discussions about in recent days, again, um, was the discussion of the suppression strategy that was agreed to um, by the National Cabinet, um, which was advised by the AHPPC. um, And uh, Brett Sutton, our Victorian Chief Health Officer, um, just recently, I think it was on Saturday, um, kind of left the door open to Looking at an elimination strategy, and said that we really shouldn't um, discount that as a future choice and a future option given where um, the rest of the Australian states stand in comparison to Victoria. And I'm just going to play a really short clip of 50 seconds, um, and hopefully you can hear it because this is a new system I'm using. But if you can't, I'll repeat what Brett has said um, in a summary. But I just wanted to share this with the listeners if you can indulge me for a moment. Um, it was a it was a decision of national cabinet ahppc um, provided the the pros and cons if you like of
3: suppression and elimination Uh, as a public health person uh, i'd be very happy if elimination were a a feasible um, thing to achieve because uh, it has its own challenges Uh, you you absolutely need to not reintroduce virus at any point once you've eliminated it because it'll take off um, but the challenges of suppression are, are very substantial as well, especially if a vaccine is two years away or 18 months or more away. Um, so I think uh, it's not um, it's not the national decision at the moment. I would hope that as we move through this phase in Victoria and look at uh, everything else that's occurring across the rest of Australia, that we don't close ourselves off to a re-evaluation and a reappraisal uh, of what's feasible and, and what
2: the pros and cons are. Um, so that
0: was... Interesting to me when I heard it. Were you able to hear that, Mary
2: Louise? No, but um, I, I think I have heard uh, previously um, a softening to the approach of uh, eradication.
0: Mm. and essentially just uh, so you know I, what i played he was saying um he hopes that there would be room for a re-evaluation and, and an openness to an elimination strategy because from a public health perspective although elimination has its challenges it would obviously be better for us in the medium to long term with the vaccine potentially um quite a while away
2: absolutely um that's why you know i've been advocating like a broken record and others. Uh, are now starting to come on board. Once you've seen a nasty um, pandemic like SARS, um, you you don't go for um, that um, unethical, untried, unscientific approach of herd immunity, like a couple of countries around the world are. Um, And you also uh, don't wait. And you try to go for elimination because you know you're never going to get there. But when you're getting very small numbers, uh, the um, impost on human traces uh, and the um, the resources that that takes is very minimal, so that when you do get an outbreak, a small one or even a large one, you've got all of the contact traces and, and you've got uh, full resources to throw at it and... I squash it immediately before that little ember becomes a bushfire. Uh, and that is the whole reason. Uh, now, from an epidemiologist's perspective, now from an economist's perspective, and I'm not an economist, and outbreak investigators should never be economists. That's not our job. It's the job of um, the, uh, the leaders uh, to decide how they're going to balance it. But then if they... Um, don't want to take up the approach of the epidemiologist. They have to accept that they will get criticism um, because we've seen it before. This is not a learning process for us. We've seen it before. So you go for eradication and then the economists will say, uh, in hindsight, well, actually, because there have been a few that have now come uh, around, uh, that it has less impact economically and less impact emotionally and um, uh, psychologically. If you go for eradication, get the numbers really down low so that you can then lift all of the borders around Australia and have um, the borders lifted with like-type countries, such as South Korea, uh, Taiwan, New Zealand, um, and others in the region, so that you can open up a bit. And then, of course, that improves the economy as well. So uh, that's the reason why outbreak managers such as myself have have never um, supported the idea of containment um, because it it doesn't work with uh, something that we already thought had a reproductive number of over two, which means for every person who has it, they can give it to two others because in a similar situation if you're in a uh, religious meeting or a wedding or a party or um, in the abattoirs in you know, a crowded working conditions, uh, that too, that reproductive number, can uh, blow out to six or more. So if you go for elimination rather than this discontainment, uh, you've got much better control over the next time uh, this virus sneaks around. And it always will because there's a proportion, we think it's somewhere between 15 and maybe 20% of cases are truly asymptomatic. They don't seem to witness they have any symptoms. But we think they're at a lower uh, infectivity to others, but they still, in close um, uh, situations, they can still spread it, we think. Uh, when We don't have a lot of scientific understanding of asymptomatics. Uh, not as much as we do about those that are pre-symptomatic, that they become infectious, certainly when they're symptomatic, but potentially from the epidemiology two days before. So we've got a group out there that will potentially be uh, causing some infections, and that's why when you go for eradication, um, that those infections they cause uh, are much easier to control further spread.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's a a really interesting uh, point that you're making and uh, it does seem really important in the context of rising hospital admissions and also um, rising numbers of people in intensive care in Victoria, um, because the the kind of effects of going into intensive care and being put on a ventilator um, are not just short term. There can be certainly long term effects of having to had an ICU stay. Um, And there's also other really kind of, I guess, just emerging evidence around some of the medium to potentially long-term effects of having a severe case of coronavirus and um, potentially having after effects of fatigue. Um, We've seen some discussion of um, small proportions of people having neurological symptoms and damage um, to their brains in a in a kind of um, in very small cases. But it is interesting to see that uh, it's not just about "Quote unquote mild cases and the other cases where someone is admitted to hospital or ends up in ICU. There seems like there are a lot of other consequences to not having the virus um, at least controlled, but preferably, as you say, eliminated. What are your thoughts um, from the perspective of you know advising the World Health Organization and no doubt being across a lot of the evidence around that in the emerging areas?"
2: Look, we don't know who's going to be one of these cases that you've mentioned. Um, That is why um, predicting who's going to be the unfortunate person with uh, neurological um, complications. And that neurological complication can also occur post-treatment as well. Now, during SARS, they had nothing to give critically ill people and they did try to give them some steroids. And there was... Um, long-term consequences with neuropathy, so with some nerve damage. Um, This time round, they're giving much lower doses but only for people on uh, mechanical ventilation, so seriously ill people. They may or may not have long-term damage. Um, We're hoping that because it's a lower uh, amount um, that we may see uh, fewer uh, adverse consequences. But even... For the misnomer of mild case, and I think it really should be called uh, not needing to be admitted to hospital case, where they may not need a um, medical intervention per se, uh, you hear a lot of survivors talking about um, not not being perfect at six weeks, which is the official um, period of time um, that people are becoming um supposedly over, it's not infectious anymore. And I think it's beholden to the society to have those people talk. Um, We need to have those that bounce back or hardly felt it, Uh, but we also need to talk and have that conversation with people about how they felt um, uh, the fear, um, the exhaustion, um, and uh, where they're up to uh, now, so that the community can understand why um, The authorities have uh, been uh, so, um, uh, I guess, uh, working hard towards uh, reducing infection. That's why outbreak investigators um, want to see uh, no one getting it. So we want to go for eradication. In um, New York City, we don't know if it's because they have a slightly different strain um, or if it's because of the underlying poor health of some of the New Yorkers, but you're seeing young people in their 30s and 40s um, having um, stroke and clot, and not just in arteries, but in tiny veins. And that means that surgeons really can't remove them all. It's uh, very difficult when um, a patient has multiple clots and it can be... um, Uh, not just to the brain, uh, but other organs as well. So they are incredibly ill, and sometimes they don't get to hospital fast enough. Uh, So uh, there are many uh, versions of this, from death to um, potentially long-term ill effects to um, I didn't even know I had it. Uh, And we can't predict who will have which outcome. And so that's why eradication is the best one to go for from an epidemiological and a clinical perspective. But hopefully the economists will get on board to say, actually, it's the best way to go in hard and fast and for them to take on our um, outbreak managers um, mantra, go in early, go in hard, so that um, they can then help uh, the authorities to see that it's uh, really a best approach so that we can then all go back to having a sociable life. And then if we do see the occasional case, uh, we're faster uh, and more effective at removing um, that threat to the, to the wider community.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned those vascular effects and um, I know that there are other things like encephalitis and uh, even post-viral syndromes and um, diseases like uh, Guillain-Barre and myalgic encephalomyelitis and transverse myelitis, which are all obviously rare, but certainly things that can happen. So um, it's really interesting to hear your views on that. Just finally, um, I did want to mention schools because there are discussions now around children to children transmission and also children to adult. And um, whether the evidence has shifted or changed at all, given we've seen such huge clusters in some cases uh, in schools, which, of course, are not just confined to school in terms of um, potential areas of transmission, it could have come from outside of school. Um, But I wonder, from your perspective, looking from a very high level across all the data and emerging evidence, whether there is a a different or changing view around uh, children and and transmission of the virus. Mm
2: -hmm. So in February um, 11 and 12, we had a face-to-face meeting with WHO of um, 400 um, experts across nine themes, which included um, geology and epidemiology and clinical um, care and all sorts of areas. And we identified what we knew and what we didn't know. And then we met again virtually this time on July uh, 1 and 2, And uh, children came up, and what we have, we still don't know a lot, but um, what we do think uh, we feel comfortable with is anyone who's 18, 17 or 18, starts physiologically behaving like an adult. Uh, So um, they uh, are at risk of acquiring COVID more so than their younger siblings. um, particularly they've kind of um, got it at the age of about 14, 16, 14 you physiologically um, uh, are at less risk Uh, we think it's because of the upper airway response um, that basically shuts out the the virus from getting to the lower airways um, or that the body um, uh, elicits an enormous immune response and therefore uh, it is um, uh, protecting the child. Um, but we also uh, have identified that children uh, less than 17 years of age uh, are usually it as the last uh, case within a family cluster. And so they're often seen as asymptomatic, but it could just be that they haven't had follow-up to identify uh, how long it took symptoms. Um, so at the moment, we still think they're more asymptomatic or mild symptoms. But as I said, we haven't had really good longitudinal follow-up of those kids. Um, but we think that they don't drive uh, the epidemic. So it's mm-hmm. the adults that are driving it within a cluster of a family or a classroom, um, and that the children um, may need much more exposure. And but. Um, Melbourne is in a quite a unique position. They've done a lot of testing. And so they'll be able to add to a body of knowledge that we don't really have uh, internationally yet, and that is, um, did they at school, when when apparently there are some cases that they think were acquired at school, uh, did they have a... Um, long and close relationship with their best friend, or is it somebody they sit close to in the classroom, or is it a more um, casual um, uh, exposure? So that will tell, tell us how child-to-child um, um, exposure occurs. So that will be a very important uh, piece of epidemiology that we're looking forward to reading. Mm,
0: That's really uh, great to hear that at least there will be some positive (laughs) outcome from all the testing that uh, Victoria has been doing. Uh, Mary Louise, I'm absolutely so very grateful for your time and your really amazing expertise in this area. It's just been very uh, illuminating and enlightening, and uh, I want to thank you on behalf of our listeners who no doubt have also found it really valuable to hear your um, really well-informed and reasoned views on the current situation for us here in Victoria.
2: I wish you all the luck uh, in the world, and we're um, we're all um, sending our very best wishes to you. And you're all really brave. Uh, going through all of this, and you're not alone. Thank you so much.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au
2: to find out how.
0: And now we're going to be speaking about um, another book. It's uh, Patrick's second book, which is published through Scribe, and it's called The Trials of Portnoy, How Penguin Brought Down Australia's Censorship System, and uh it's been out for around about a month and Patrick, I believe, is based up in Canberra and he joins me now. Hi there, Patrick.
3: Hey, Amy. It's great to be with you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us again and congratulations on those wins. Can you um, remind me, I think there was one from New South Wales, was it?
3: Yeah, um, the Tiberius of the Telephone, it got, won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Nonfiction, uh, the Douglas Stewart Prize. Uh, and just the other day it was shortlisted for the biography award um, so wow. pretty stoked all up yeah. in Canada at the moment
0: yeah what an amazing achievement for your first book like it was it was a really beautifully researched and written book so I'm not surprised but it's uh, really wonderful to hear that you've done so well
3: uh, thank you thank you it's really kind
0: uh, it was, uh, definitely a memorable book and it's um, a very yeah a really great book it was printed very well and uh, the the cover was very eye-catching and I believe this cover of yours for the second edition um, is also <coughs> excuse me very eye-catching
3: yeah the big nice big photo of John Mickey uh, the managing director of Penguin Books looking very much like he's hopped out of Mad Men with his Benson and Hedges cigarettes on the, on the table beside him um, Scribe do wonderful work with their covers and they bring those photos to life uh, like nothing else I love it looks yeah. terrific
0: He's, yeah, it's great, it's fantastic, and the the Penguin orange in um, all its glory as well.
3: Oh, absolutely, absolutely.
0: <laughs> it's a very iconic company that you're that you're dealing with in this book, and um, and also an iconic book, I guess, that perhaps uh, some people are familiar with, but others may not be. I wonder if you could give us a, a short crash course on what Philip Roth's Portnoy's Complaint was actually about.
3: Yeah, okay, Um, this is going to be interesting, trying to compress it to to a couple of sentences. Um, So, Portnoy's Complaint is Philip Roth's third novel. It's published in 1969 and it's basically a monologue. It's given by a 33-year-old lawyer named Alexander Portnoy. He lies on a psychiatrist's couch and he basically narrates the course of his life. Uh, Portnoy's a guy who's kind of torn himself in two. On one hand, from a really early age, He's been told insistently by his mother that he's a good little boy, you know, and he wants to be that. He wants to be studious and observant and honourable and, you know, honour his God, honour his parents um, and succeed in life and all those kind of, um, you know, normal, I suppose, kind of things. But at the same time, because that's been so insistently drilled into him and because his mother has kind of been so omniscient throughout his life, he also has this desire to be anything but what she's told him he is. So he wants to be bad. He wants to act out and transgress and all this kind of stuff. And when he's a kid, this rebellion kind of takes the form of this compulsive desire to masturbate. So he is masturbating all the time into like a toilet roll, um, into his sister's underwear, into an apple core, uh, and most famously into a piece of liver that he buys from a billboard and bangs, buys from a butcher and bangs behind a billboard while on his way to a bar mitzvah lesson. Um, and the thing, the thing about this is that every single time Portnoy does it, he doesn't kind of get any pleasure. He actually starts to feel immediately guilt and shame for this transgression, you know, that he hasn't lived up to the ideals these mums try to set for him. And so he that kind of anger and that, that guilt and that shame kind of curdle and they become anger and he's compelled to rebel again and to transgress again but to go further and further and further. So that by the time he's an adult, he's having these kind of very lurid affairs of the flesh. You know, he's having threesomes, he's having um, oral sex outside, he's doing all sorts of stuff. Um, But he's kind of the whole time stunted by it. Like he's withered and alone and terribly isolated. He can't make a proper connection with somebody. And so on one hand, it's, it's quite a tragic book in this sense that this guy's... Um, spiral down into this kind of solipsistic and, and, and narcissistic kind of loop. Uh, but at the same time, it's also very comic. It's very funny. Um, Portnoy on the couch is really articulate and and he's a smart guy. He makes puns all the time. He says that his dilemma is between publicly pleasing his parents and privately pulling his puts. Um, <laughs> he calls himself the Raskalnikov of jerking off. He jokes about ejaculating into his own eye and then going blind um. Yeah. You know, all these kinds of things that he he, yeah. You know, he, he's so excessively. Um, so it's, it's a really funny book. There's a lot of wordplay. There are a lot of puns. Um, but it's got this very serious grain of of um, of grappling with profound issues that preoccupied Roth throughout his life, from masculinity to sexuality to Judaism and Americana. Um, yeah. That, that's that's in it in a nutshell. I think.
0: Wow. That is an excellent description. (laughs) Thank you for that. It was uh, really interesting. I feel like some people might be uh, compelled to read the book now, obviously in the right age bracket, but um, I was interested in Philip Roth because I hadn't really uh, come across his work and particularly this book. I know it was kind of um, like a stream of consciousness. It wasn't in a traditional novel sense, was it?
3: No, it's not. It's... um Roth was kind of working from a book called, it was influenced by a book called The Confessions of Zeno, which is this ostensibly monologue about a stream of consciousness. Um, And it's influenced by that. There are all these nods to Freud throughout. Um, And it's right in the sense that it marks a really stylistic change from Roth's earlier work, which was really formal and kind of what you would expect for a typical novel, you know, third person, omniscient narration and so on. Um, this is a really different one. It's much more free flowing. It's much more manic, um, and and one of the things that one of the reasons why this novel became so famous is because people would stand around and read it aloud, um, <laughs> because it rewards that kind of that reading. It has that kind of mental flow and that that love of wordplay. Um, yeah,
0: mm, I can imagine, given that um, stream of consciousness, it could be easy to get quite engrossed into it and um, lose yourself in the book, which. Uh, I did see that um, it was featured in Mad Men and Don Draper even was having a read of it in season seven. And uh, I did watch that scene because I was like, well, I wonder how it was depicted there. And uh, when someone came in, he kind of hid it in between the creases in his couch so that no one could see he was reading it. So I felt like it was funny. Even Don Draper moderated his behaviour.
3: Ah, uh, even Don Draper. I mean, perfect kind of example of somebody at war with himself. It's, it's, it's quite an apt book for him to read, yeah, actually. So true,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very, it's always such an artistic show, Madman. I feel like it has a lot of meaning that uh, we can glean from it. I, I want to, um, now that we have a sense of this kind of um, character of the book and the themes of it um, really quite vividly, I wanted to ask about um, how censorship – in Australia, came about, and um, obviously this is one example—a very clear example—of where uh, Australians, or at least the kind of ruling, um, you know, sections of Australia, had deemed it an inappropriate type of content or subject matter for the general population. Um, but that wasn't the first time at all that um, that you know, Australians, government, and through the laws, of course, and and courts, um, had censored books and actually banned them from even entering Australia.
3: Yeah, we, we had a, I mean, staggering as it is to think of it today, we had a really long history of censorship. Um, up until the 1970s, up until Portnoy's complaint, um, we maintained a system that was both domestic and federal in nature. Um, Since before Federation, each of the colonies adopted laws relating to obscenity and indecency um, that upon Federation became the basis of the domestic system whereby police could go into a bookshop, um, seize books, prosecute the writers, the publishers and the booksellers for trafficking in obscenity or indecency um, or blasphemy and sedition. Like these are the typical kind of categories of offence that they would prosecute for. Um, So material that was obscene or indecent or blasphemous and seditious that was produced locally could be prosecuted at the state government level. When we federated, we also had um, one of the first things we actually did was created the Department of Customs. Which was designed to police everything that came into Australia. We're an island nation, um, and so the Department of Customs basically acted as a quarantine, a ring fenced Australia. And it sought to use those obscenity and indecency laws at a federal level to keep out all material that was produced overseas that was thought to be obscene or indecent. Um, so, you know, if you came home to Australia, um, customs clerks would go through your briefcase, would go through your suitcases, and they would seize anything that they um, believe should be banned. And so it was in this way that we had for a very long time, um, basically we were cut off from a whole range of the world's literature um, and our own writers themselves were kind of policed on what they could and couldn't write. Um, the idea of the system kind of in, in some respects was nation building, especially early on. Um, you know, this idea that Australia was a new nation and young Uh, and that its people needed to have a shared morality and a shared ideology and a shared uh, religiosity as well. So you you could see why producing and and curating the country's literature um, would kind of be in line with that and be understandable. But over time, the system became far more reaching and became a way of asserting a specific type of morality. Um, During World War I, we we removed material that was... Uh, discuss socialism or fascism or anarchism. After World War One, the onus kind of and the focus shifted to works that depicted socialism or realism and modernism. Um, and so under that regime in particular, a huge sway of, work, of works were banned, things like Brave New World, um, A Farewell to Arms, even All Quiet on the Western Front, these kind of classic works of international literature were screened out from Australians. We were told we couldn't read them. Um, during the, and, and the system itself was also you know, targeted at Australian writers. J.M. Um, Harcourt's Upsurge was banned um, for depicting modern realism and for taking the Mickey out of the judiciary here in Australia. Uh, and Norman Lindsay's Red Heap was also banned, it was suppressed for many years. Um, and it, it's also worth saying that this system was kind of by the 1930s and 40s and 50s was kind of responding very much to panics about morality. So comic books, um, which were coming in after Second World War, were very heavily censored because they were thought they had appealed to the young. Um, books that depicted popular romances or, or thrillers, you know, those kind of pulp noir crime novels, um, those too were banned and, and policed and censored. Um, the, the overriding definition of censorship of obscenity was that it would deprave or corrupt those whose minds remained open to immoral influences. And that category of those people whose minds remained open um, was interpreted rather expansively. It was thought to apply to children, to women, um, to the uneducated and working classes. And so you had this kind of very classist, hierarchical, patriarchal system. Um, that by the 1950s and 60s was a real problem. It was really conspicuous how um, out of sync this system was. In the 1960s, Arthur Ryler, who was the chief secretary in Victoria, um, a man of quite prodigious energy but also a, a very strong conservative in many respects, said that he would not allow people to read Mary McCarthy's novel The Group because he would not allow his, he would not like for his teenage son or daughter to read that book. So there was a kind of element of, of the senses know best, the censors want to protect you, the censors want to stop um, people being corrupted and becoming degenerates and perverts by reading about things. So, um, and, and there was this, by the 1950s and 60s, this was becoming a centre-stage debate in Australia's politics. Um, books like Another Country by James Baldwin, um, books like Lady Chatterley's Lover, um, even James Bond, you know, was banned at one point. And so the system was coming under attack and it was arousing a lot of opposition. Uh, And it's kind of into that fray that Penguin Books Australia decided to publish Portnoy's complaint, which had been banned by the census on grounds that the sex depicted in the book and the use of four-letter words uh, and the depiction of God and the ridicule of parents. On the basis of that, Portnoy's complaint was banned and Penguin Books decided that it had to take a stand on it and oppose the censorship system.
0: Mm. and uh, we'll delve into that in just a moment. Um, I was shocked when you just said that, you know, Hemingway could possibly be controversial, because um, <laughs> to me he's not. And, you know, I even read um, in your book you sa- you were saying that James Joyce's Ulysses was banned. Um, and, and really interestingly, some of the great primary sources you quote around uh, Emile Zola being banned as well and uh, the age saying that, probably every sane person agrees that Zola is not only filthy but also revolting. Um, And it's just so interesting to see that it wasn't just the government necessarily um, stating or or having this kind of paternalistic approach but that even the media bought into this and um, it was almost part of the culture or the zeitgeist. And um, I wonder whether you could... Uh, comment on whether there was kind of a tacit acceptance by the population for a while about um, the role of the government in censoring cultural um, and literary products?
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One of the things that kind of staggered me when I was looking at this was that even by the 1970s, when opposition to censorship was at its height, um, there were opinion polls published showing that 60% of Australians either wanted the censorship system preserved or they wanted it extended even further. That, you know, they wanted more censorship. Um, so it's definitely true that for a long time we actually really liked censorship in Australia. We wanted it. We thought it was necessary. Um, and part of that was because we kind of did want to have this shared view of the world and we wanted a shared morality. Um, but And some of the works, it has to be said as well, were for their day quite shocking. Um, Myra Breckenridge by Gore Vidal, for example, which was published uh, in the 1960s, uh, is you know it depicts a person of transgender. Um, it depicts homosexuality, um, and and to many people those those depictions were an aff- affronting. They were disgusting. Um, one of the things that censorship did was it kind of drew this line between what was normal and what was natural, and then what was abnormal and unnatural. And so into one category you would they placed basically straight sex. Uh, and, and Christianity and um, obedience to capitalism and a federal government. In the other, they placed everything else. So from homosexuality um, to cross to transgender, to, to, to all sorts of things, um, to different religions and to different politics. And so, you know, for Australians, um, we kind of did see ourselves as liking things to be exactly what we thought we were, which was straight, white, um, Christian, you know, slavishly devoted to empire. Um, anything that kind of transgressed that, we did condemn. We thought it was disgusting. We didn't want a bar of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I know that contraception um, was another thing that the government didn't want people reading about.
3: Yeah, th- this was this is quite staggering. I think in many ways, um, in the in the early th- in the early nineteen hundreds. Um, the government in Australia became preoccupied by what it thought was a a falling birth rate to the point that the New South Wales state government called a Royal Commission. Uh, And in that Royal Commission, they called for the policing of material related to information about contraception or about abortion. They said this material needs to be kept away from people um, because it was going to have a moral influence. It might induce people to use contraception or might induce them to use um, abortion. Um, procedures. So this material then was policed, it was kept away, even though this was kind of ostensibly scientific um, and medical information, it was deemed obscene and indecent and it was kept away from people. And this is notwithstanding um, an 1888 ruling from the New South Wales Supreme Court that that information was in fact not obscene, that it was not indecent um, and that people should be allowed to access it. One of the things that is kind of, um, that, that I think is really problematic about censorship at this time was that it was so often subjective and very personal. Clerks working in the customs department in particular were allowed to exercise, they were encouraged to exercise their personal discretion um, and what they thought would be indecent. And generally, that idea of indecency was defined by what they themselves would encounter um, in everyday life. So they kind of thought that you know, what they thought was indecent, what they thought was not proper for a person to know would be deemed indecent and therefore kept away. Um, and in a department that was largely populated by Irish Catholics, it has to be said, um, a certain kind of morality took hold. Um, and right up until the 1950s, that morality um, persisted. The The Literature Censorship Board of Review, in fact, described itself as one point as being a bulwark for Anglo-Saxon standards of reticence. Um, so this policing of obscenity and indecency was far reaching. It went across into many, many categories.
0: That's really interesting. And, um, I was also really interested in, um, the, the fact that it was often hard to know what book was on the banned list and, um, Also, the I guess the contrast um, to that is that you open the book with a really vivid recounting of um, some people heading into a uh, Angus and Robertson bookstore to um, to queue for a kind of unnamed wink and nod book behind the counter um, that was put into a kind of plain brown bag, and uh, and that kind of the fact that that was obviously quite obvious or, um, visible in a way, like it, it was invisible, but visible. And I wondered how Portnoy's complaint and its publication happened in Australia and what, um, what the kind of steps were that brought Penguin to actually um, you know, take up this case and respond to it and um, stand, put their their reputation on the line and um and take a stand for this kind of principle of mm. you know, being against censorship?
3: Yeah, um one of the things about it is that that there was always opposition to censorship. I mean, even right from the from Federation onwards, there was always opposition. Um it gathered most sway in the nineteen thirties. But it really came onto the political agenda in the 1960s, where you had successive court actions against domestic publishers of material, in particular uh, Richard Neville, Richard Walsh, and Martin Sharp, for publication of Oz in the early 1960s. But in the toward the end of the 1960s and 1970s, um, there was a consistent outcry and opposition to censorship coming about. Um, And there was, you know, there there were ways to get material. People could smuggle in books and did smuggle books into Australia. So sometimes you could get them, you could get them under the counter um, or you could get them furtively on shop corners or someone would pass you a a photocopied version of a book. Um, The the reason why Portnoy's Complaint and Penguin's publication of it is so important is because this was one of the first times that a mainstream major publisher took a book on and published it in defiance of the censorship authorities. Um, Penguin Books at this time was really coming into its own as a domestic Australian publisher. They'd been founded in Australia in 1946 uh, and effectively at that time they were kind of a distribution centre for the paperbacks that their British parent company uh, were producing. It was only in the 1960s that they started producing a domestic publishing list, um, and that was usually in takeovers. They'd get a book from Angus and Robertson that would publish in hardcover, and they'd put a a paperback on it and publish it. Um, But in the 1960s, they started as well to produce their own original titles, Um, and the most famous of those, of course, is Donald Horne's Lucky Country, uh, which was published in 1964. Um, Penguin was led by young people, uh, and it was led by people who were intent on kind of asserting a role for literature and asserting a role for culture in shaping a country's future and its society in the present. Um, and the guys in charge of Penguin Books in 1970 were really intent on this. John Mickey, who's the man on the cover of my book, um, he was the managing director. He had a he was a very smart guy, um, smart with money, smart with logistics, uh, and he employed bright people around him. He had John Hooker as a non-fiction editor, who was a very much um, a socially-minded, politically-minded kind of publisher. Uh, And he had Peter Froelich, who was a finance director, and again, very good with money, very good with finances and logistics. Um, And they had encountered problems with censorship before, and they were conscious that, in their view, censorship was inhibiting all sorts of discussions and debates that needed to be had. Um, So discussions about sex and discussions about gender and sexuality and... You know, power and, and, and those kind of dynamics that had kind of been frozen uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. So they saw themselves as being able to shape that culture and shape those questions and that debate, and they wanted to take censorship on. It's worth saying that they were aided in this by the parallel with Lady Chatterley's Lover. Um, Penguin UK had published Lady Chatterley's Lover and spurred an obscenity trial in the UK in 1960. Um so they were aided in that parallel and they decided that they were going to take on Portnoy's complaint and publish it. It was a notorious book. It was a famous book. It was a worldwide bestseller. Uh, and the ban in Australia had, it certainly attracted our uh, headlines. So they knew that by taking Portnoy's complaint on, they would likely sell a lot of copies that they would likely draw attention to the censorship fight. Uh, and that, you know, whether they would win or lose, they would probably be able to, you know, make a dent in this debate. So, they secured the rights for Portnoy's complaint, first of all, by paying $10,000 to uh, Cordy, which had bought the paperback rights in Australia but had been unable to exercise them. They smuggled three copies into the country and using Halstead Press, which was a printer owned by Angus and Robertson in Sydney, uh, they printed 75,000 copies of the book. Um, now, that's a, a really large print run, um, then and now, too, in fact, but... Um, The idea that they had was by printing it in secret and printing it in such huge amounts that they could distribute it across the country at the same time and unveil it at the same time um, so that basically there'd be copies everywhere, that it would be impossible to kind of shut it down for the police to swoop and to seize all the books and suppress it. And that's what they did. Um, This kind of that those logistics that I mentioned before, Penguin had honed its distribution machinery to the point that it could order books and dispatch them very, very fast, um, and they timed this really perfectly. Um, all the books came into Penguin's warehouse. Sorry, forty thousand copies of the book came to Penguin's warehouse in Melbourne uh, on in late August, and they were distributed, sent out the next day. They were gone within twenty four hours, and so on. Thirty one August, nineteen seventy, the last day of winter. Um, John Mickey held a press conference at his home and announced that Penguin had published Portnoy's complaint that the book would be available the next day everywhere in the country, from Perth to Sydney, um, Darwin to Hobart, you'd be able to get the book. And he said, you know, we're, we're publishing this book, we are inviting the state governments to prosecute and we'll take this to the high court if necessary in order to win. And so that was it, that was the shot, the game was on.
0: Mm. And at this point, was it the case that John Mickey was 34 years old?
3: Yeah. Yeah, he was a young guy, very young.
0: I love it. It's great. Um, and and you do, like, recount the trials and the first trial being in Melbourne um, and some of the testimony um, and cross-examination that was occurring in the courtroom. And it was interesting um, when they were talking about Uh, some of the themes and saying, oh, well, you know, isn't the book all about sex? Just look at the blurb. Um, And also uh, some people talking about um, or speculating whether sexual matters were always foremost in the character's mind and whether that was a problem. (laughs) Some people saying that it's in everyone's mind. (laughs) So it sounds like there was a very colorful um, transcript from court documents, even just in that first trial. I wonder when you were researching this as a historian and looking through the primary evidence, um, what kind of you know color and movement um, struck you about about the way that it was spoken about and what that revealed about Australia?
3: Yeah, I mean there were two really big things that stood out to me when i was when I was reading the transcripts of these trials um, the first one is just how, how silly it sounds. You know, a courtroom is this very serious place. You have judges who are experienced and in their robes and wigs, um, these grand lawyers, QCs, standing up. Um, but at the end of the day, they're arguing about masturbation. I mean, it's so <laughs> s- silly. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, like, is, and, and they're talking about kind of whether or not masturbation is made better because it's depicted with literary merit. And, you know, you think about Portnoy talking about masturbating into a piece of liver, it's kind of like, yes, that bit's especially meritorious, sir. It's That's <laughs> a wonderful little bit, you know. It's So that really struck me as just being very, very amusing. Um, the other thing, though, that I was really struck by, and it was actually the thing that made me want to write this book, is that so much of the testimony given at these trials was, I think, quite, quite wise. Um, the... Each of these trials, in each of these trials, um, the defence called witnesses from academia, from the writing community, from journalist circles, uh, and they tried to get them to talk about why these books were important and what they were trying to do. And all of the academics in particular gave really, I think, intelligent, seasoned, empathetic responses to all this discussion and trying to damn Portnoy on basis that he was a pervert and a degenerate. They were kind of broaden the discussion and and point out that this is a guy with flaws and that perhaps by reading about him, you might actually come to understand those flaws or that you might yourself, if you struggle with the same feelings, might sense that you're not alone or that you are like everybody else. Um, And so you might leaven that guilt and that shame that perhaps comes along with some feelings of masturbation and attitudes about sex. Um, and I was really struck in in one of the trials by something said by Harry Heseltine, who was a long-time professor of English literature. He said that, you know, nothing that is human is alien to me. This idea that nothing that can be depicted um, in a book is so terrible as to be worth damning out of hand, as the prosecution had tried to do. So that really struck me and I think was quite important um, because it spoke to how, the censor, how censors tried to read literature and tried to read books in one way only. This kind of didactic sense of this book is solely and wholly about sex and that's it. This book is solely and wholly about blasphemy and fornication and that's it. Um, but there's far more going on in these books uh, and, and in Portnoy's complaint in particular, but also in others. You know, literature spills out of whatever box you try to put it in. It can never really be held within and held to be one thing only And I think that was an important point made by the academics in these trials. Uh, And one of the worthy things of this this whole affair um, is that they're saying kind of look more broadly and think about the freedom, think about the autonomy, think about the independence and the the broader landscape into which this can sit. Um, And that's the thing I think that is most important about these trials and about the struggle over censorship. It comes down to a question of autonomy. A government was trying to stand in the way and say, we will decide, we will protect, we will exercise our judgement and our discretion. Um, and the anti-censors, by turn, we're saying, let us do it ourselves. We're adults, we can make decisions ourselves, we can make choices ourselves about what we want to read. Um, and that's kind of, I think, is where the thrust of this whole debate comes down to and why I think it's a story of significance.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a really... Well, it is very wise um, because obviously sex and religion and all of those things are part of human nature and part of, you know, the essence of human life. So to just single it out as being, you know, the headline or the category of just one thing is obviously, yeah, very simplistic and um, not taking into account the messiness of humans,
3: That's it, that's it. It's the messiness of it. I mean, like, Portnoy's complaint is certainly advertised as being the funniest novel ever written about sex, but Mm -hmm. it's also about parents and about God and about um, how you can make your own identity and what that identity can and should be. Um, One of the, I think, one of the most striking moments in in the court transcripts I found um, was in the New South Wales court trial where... um, this was, the, this was one of the only trials that were argued before a jury. All of the others were argued before judges in Victoria, Western Australia, Northern Territory, Queensland, Tasmania. Only in New, in New South Wales was it argued before a jury. And the prosecutor got up in one of the trials and said that, in, in the New South Wales trial, and he said that if you read this book, people will be disinclined to obey their parents. They won't <laughs> be inclined to obey authority. Uh, and to Were this, they the,
0: inclined ever?
3: Well, I mean, very good question. Very good question. Um, but, but William Dean, was the QC for the defence um, and who would later become a high court justice and governor general, um, he had this kind of, I think, very eloquent response in turn. He said, well, look, we are saying to young people, you can be conscripted and sent to fight in the jungles of Vietnam. You know, why can't we trust them to read a book? We can trust these people to shoot a gun and kill people, but we can't trust them to read about sex and read about questions of autonomy. Um, it's It was this kind of, I think, crystallising moment of of who gets to decide and, and who gets to decide not only what a book is but what it can be and what people are and what they can be. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. It's... Well, it is very deep. It gets very philosophical, doesn't it? Um, just really briefly, what was what was the repercussion, or were there any, um, you know, sanctions in the beginning, or how? What was the kind of way that we did kind of get rid of this censorship system? Was it a final kind of case that sealed the deal?
3: No, this is one of the things that's very anticlimactic about this struggle in some ways. Um, Portnoy had nine trials in Australia, uh, and. In, in effect, they were a mixed bag. Penguin was found guilty in Victoria. Uh, bookseller in WA was found not guilty. Northern Territory guilty. Queensland guilty twice. Um, Hobart prosecutions failed. New South Wales, the prosecutions failed again. Um, the, the big moment kind of actually came, though, with the election of the Whitlam Labor government in 1972. The Labor Party had a platform already that they would reform censorship processes to accord with the idea that people who were over the 18 could make decisions to, on what they wanted to read themselves. Um, and when he won government, that's what Whitlam did. He basically dismantled the censorship controls, so the entry of controls, uh, and he removed, he transferred responsibility for censorship from the customs department to the attorney general's department. Um, and that effectively kind of ended literary censorship in Australia. It reoriented it toward a classification system which we still have today um, and attention moreover shifted almost immediately from the written word to the image so magazines and then film um and computer games and the internet mm. um, and that's kind of where we're still left at um, in some respects it's a, it's quite an anticlimactic moment because it wasn't a massive case that triggered that change um, it wasn't a um It wasn't even legislation that triggered the change, it was a regulatory change that did it. But it's it's a moment nonetheless where that debate shifted, where the landscape of that debate notably shifted. Um, After the Portnos Complaint Trials, um, Richard Walsh, who was by then publishing director at Angus and Robertson, decided that they were going to publish Leonard Cohen's novel Beautiful Losers, um, which had been banned in Australia in 1966. And, you know, the book was still banned and he was asked aren't you scared of prosecution? Aren't you scared that, you know, you're going to be taken to court and fined and for this? And he said, no, we're not, not after Portnoy. Because he knew that the censorship system was broken, that the authorities would not take him on. And he was right. Mm. He was right.
0: Patrick, I love that the answer was Gough Whitlam. Um, and uh, it's really great that you've covered this amazing time in Australian history, which really I don't think many of us were aware of before. So I'm very grateful to you, and um, I've had a great time chatting and learning more about it. So thank you so much, and congratulations on this wonderful book, and I hope it, it goes really well for you again.
3: Thanks so much, Amy. It's been so lovely talking with you. Mullins is forever.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Go the Mullins. (laughs) I've been speaking with Patrick Mullins, who is the author of The Trials of Portnoy, How Penguin Brought Down Australia's Censorship System, and it's out through Scribe. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.